Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of leading conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, I have two very special guests with me, two individuals who are so committed to making the world a better place. And besides that, they're just really nice. I like them a lot. Dr. Sherry Clark is the retired director of Shark Incarceration for the New York State Department of Correctional Services. And we have a whole lot to learn about that. My other guest today is James Redman. He is a media producer and has been producing and distributing videos and media for over 27 years. Just trying to give your age away there, James. And he especially likes working with people in the field of transformation. So there you go, working and making the world a better place. James was involved with the documentary. He actually filmed the documentary on an innovative prison system that was shock incarceration using transformational techniques and having remarkable success. So we're going to learn all about shock incarceration and the way that this film and documentary was put together from Sherry and James. Welcome to the show, you two. So glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. So I always like to ask my guests where they are today and What's different about today is that the three of us are together. We are all in one place. We are in Montreal, Canada, and it's beautiful. It's a quite exquisite property that we are on. And we have been uh, working together with other transformational leaders from around the world. Sherry, let's start with you. So you worked within the prison systems of New York State for a long time, right? 36 years. Wow. That is a long time. How did you get started? Well, I had been working in social justice, social work, for a number of years before that. So all told, my career was a 43-year career working in social justice. And one of the things I noticed when I was working as a social worker was that the families that we worked with all seemed to have some relationship to someone in prison. Either they had been in prison themselves, a father was in prison, a mother was in prison, some relatives were in prison. And the other thing is that the average person who goes to prison in the United States for a nonviolent crime is there for about 22 months on average. Can be much longer, can be somewhat shorter, but if you're in the prison system, the average is about 22 months. They come into prison with very low levels of education, having either gotten bored because they're so smart or just not able to learn because most of the people who go to prison are in very low income brackets. And so there's, there's a lot of challenges in their lives. So one of the things that occurred to me was that we had an opportunity with this 22-month prison sentence to impact and make a difference in people's lives. Mm. So when I went to work in the county jail system back in the last century, 
I was teaching as a volunteer in corrections and eventually started training volunteers in corrections to teach people how to make better choices in their lives. Then I thought we could do this as a lifestyle in prison and had the opportunity through a series of wonderful connections from very enlightened people working in the system, including a commissioner I worked with, to start a program called the Network Program. And Network was a positive environment within the prison system. The philosophy says Network was a positive environment for human development. And that's exactly what it was. So I ran the Network Program for a number of years and the next commissioner I worked with came on one of the units one day in one of the prisons in New York State and looked at me and said, Clark, why can't they all be this way? And I said, well, they can. And he said, well, how would you do it? And I said, just the way we do it here. We had a training program for officers. Inmates volunteered. And they basically chose the lifestyle. Back in those days, there had been a study done by a man named Robert Martinson that actually was totally misinterpreted and was totally not what he said. So the popular press said, Martinson says nothing works. That is not what he said. What he said is what works is when staff and inmates volunteer, what works is when staff are committed to whatever their model is. So he said it doesn't matter what the model is. What matters is they're committed to it and congruent with it. So I paid attention to that kind of thing, and I had been studying every model that was available about human change, human development, and so I had a whole bunch of tools in my toolbox and wanted to create a lifestyle where people could make better choices and choose the life they wanted. Network was the first iteration. It was one housing unit within a larger prison. It was, there were no end dates that you could come on the unit, and as long as you worked, you could stay on the unit. So people did that. And the average stay was about six months. Now, someone could be doing 15 to life and be on a network unit, but they could also be a drug dealer who was doing two and a half to five and be on a network unit. What we noticed was that people lived more effectively, and when we followed them up in the community, they were continuing to live more effectively because they lived in choice. Hmm. So the commissioner, when he came on the unit and he saw these clean, quiet environments where people were industrious and they were working and they weren't sitting around or laying around waiting for the next thing to happen, they were actually up and working and moving and inmates were actively involved in the program. So he said, how would you do it? And hmm. he Could you do it in a total institution? I said, Absolutely. Fantastic. That took a big vision for you to, even though you knew the program worked, but to be understanding that you could scale it to that level. That mm. took big vision. And belief in people. I'm really struck by um, a word you used. You said network program 
is a positive environment for human development. And that made me think that, you know, we don't often use that word human when we are speaking about people who are imprisoned. We say prisoners, we say inmates, which actually um, kind of distances us from the fact that they are human beings, right? And, you know, because I know you and I know how important um, the value of a person is to you, um, I wonder how many people, well, not necessarily a number, but did you have a lot of pushback from people in the system saying, you know, why are you wanting to give them this? I mean, isn't this kind of like treating them special and why should we be teaching them this? Because, you know, there was more that sense of we're warehousing prisoners. Well, one of the things that happened in prison is that after four o'clock, there's nothing to do because programs operate during the day. Network operated from four to nine p.m. So it was gave the inmates something to do, gave the staff focus and staff who came to training were volunteers they were in a larger prison they mm-hmm. could have worked anywhere right but if they decided they wanted to work on a network unit they had to volunteer for training at that time it was a two-week training mm. it was very intensive because they were volunteers we could work longer hours um and they they got so much out of it for themselves. Yeah, they went yeah. home with a sense of empowerment. Mm. They went uh, they went to work with a sense of empowerment. Right, and right. so they were doing the teaching. Mm. They got taught. It's the ultimate leverage. I taught them. They taught the inmates. Yes. And then taught each other. So yes. I had a team of people who worked with me eventually. Right. Who continued to teach the program. So when the commissioner said that to me, could you do it in a total institution? And I just said, sure. You know, we were standing in the middle of a housing unit in a correctional facility where the network is still, network program is still operating. And he asked me to talk him through it. And this was about 1985. And what I didn't know at the time was he was going around the country hearing about this program, a boot camp type program in the country. And it was all the rage because we had prison overcrowding from all our restrictive drug laws. And he said, there's got to be a better way. He came back to me later. And when he talked about wanting to start something called shock incarceration, my first thought was, that's a bad idea. (laughs) And I told him that because I thought electrodes. Most people think electrodes. And he said, no, I want it to be network in the context of a military boot camp. Mm. So I said, okay, I'll think about it. So I thought about it by going to see Apocalypse Now in Full Metal Jacket and came back the next week and said, Wow. Seriously, I I scared myself. (laughs) And I went back and I said, no, I don't want to have anything to do with free beat-ups on inmates. Mm. And he said, no, it's not how it's going to operate. I've got a guy to work with you who has been working at Attica for 15 years, he's going to handle the discipline. He's going to, this guy is rock solid. So he put the two of us together. He told me about the captain who was going to run the military component. 
he didn't tell the captain I was coming. Oh, well, <laughs> so one thing at a time. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I showed up at the first staff training graduation. I wasn't available. I had gone to the Division of Parole for a couple of years, which turned out to be very fortunate because we were able to design Aftershock, which is an important component, oh, Yes. at the same time we were designing shock incarceration. So there are a number of factors that worked really well. The captain didn't know anything about me except what he'd been told, which is that I worked for the commissioner and they'd and he'd better watch out because I was going to be reporting everything back to the commissioner, oh, which was, of course, my job. Right, right, you right, know? right. So, uh, but what happened is I told him, he, he's, he's just a really well-disciplined guy, had military mm. background, had just so much common sense. And I used to tell him, I hate to tell you this, but you're the best therapist I've got. <laughs> because he just had common sense. Oh, he knew what it was like to be an 18, 19-year-old, in yeah. his case, working, running through the jungle in Vietnam. Right. And he said, you can't mess with these guys. You can't, you can't push these guys because they're just going to say, I'm out of here. Right. Yeah, yeah. But, and yet there had to be discipline and there had to be structure. And so most people wouldn't understand the discernment between pushing those guys and having structure and discipline, right? Right. And so he was able to make that happen. So, James, I know you came in later, um, in, you know, in working with Sherry on the documentary um, but you did go into the prisons to do some filming, right? Correct. And so tell me what it was like for you to be in the environment of the prisons and to um, what did you see when you were there? Well, first of all, it's very different than what you imagine it is or what you see on TV. Hmm. You know, because it was quiet, it was orderly, hmm. people were respectful. I mean, it was, it was an, a good place to be. You know, you weren't afraid or yeah. anything like that. Interesting. Yeah. And when they saw you with a camera, what did they feel? I don't know what they felt. Did they say anything? No. I mean, they, uh, they don't talk to you yeah. unless uh, they're given permission to talk. Wow. That's interesting. And there's a reason behind all that is that they really want to get them to start thinking before they say something. Right, right. And so one of the things that they teach them is that they first have, have to ask, sir, permission to speak. Right. And then they're given permission, then they say what they have to say. And just like the military. Yeah. It, yes, it was very much a modified military boot camp in that the boot camp went on for six months, but was part of the greater therapeutic community. Mm -hmm. there were, it was an integrated approach. It mm -hmm. was a, a complete dynamic that, that fed off of each other. So we weren't going to war except a war on drugs. Right. So there, there was a different focus to the boot camp. We wanted people to learn to think before they acted we wanted them to learn to control 
the reactions that they might have from being bullied, which many of them were, from being bullies, which many of them were. I mean, there were a whole range of dynamics. Plus, there's one officer on a housing unit and 60 inmates there. So you needed to have the right amount of balance and leverage and and focus on what are we really doing here. Mm -hmm. So we always kept prominent in our minds, what's the vision? The vision is to create a positive environment for human development Mm. in a caring community where staff and inmates work together. So you must have not only seen a lot of transformation happen in the prisoners, but you probably saw a lot of transformation happening with the staff and officers too. Is that true? Absolutely. I used accelerated learning techniques and then through another one of our friends in TLC learned what became quantum learning techniques. Hmm. So I used that as a training model. And staff used to tell me things like if they'd had me as a teacher, they'd be a doctor. Hmm. They, because I knew how to make learning fun and easy. Yeah. I knew how to explain things simply enough mm. that they they could get it. You know, Einstein said, if you can't explain things simply, you don't understand it. There you go. You know, so I just followed that practice. And I had really good teachers along the way. I had really good training along the way. And every time I learned something new, I went back and taught the staff. I got feedback from the people who worked with me from the beginning about what worked, what didn't, and we applied it in the prison system. So I started in 1979 with the network program. The conversation I had with the commissioner was 1985, standing on the network housing unit. Shock incarceration started in 1987. And then by the time... I got to the Transformational Leadership Council and did a presentation on shock incarceration. And there was a great deal of funding from the Transformational Leadership Council because the people who stood up and said, I want to support this, put their money where their mouth was Mm. and said, you need to make a documentary about this. Jack Canfield, Ivan Meisner, John Dealey, a number of people gave us money to be able to send James around, who right. was who was our videographer at right. TLC, send him around with me. So we basically covered his expenses, well, most of his expenses, for a year of filming. So this was 2009. So yeah. we had a lot of practice and experience under our belt by the time. Right. James was doing the filming. I actually knew what I was talking about by then. Before <laughs> I was, I was, I knew, I knew, but I didn't know how I knew uh-huh. what was going to work. But I knew what would work for me as a learner who had to do it, who struggled. I didn't get things quickly. Mm. I, I really had to struggle. And, uh, really learn by doing, which is a particular style of learning that really grounds learning, really integrates it, but takes a little more time. And I knew the inmates would 
need a little more time because most of them were learners like me. Right. Most of the staff, frankly, yeah. were learners like me. Let me well, let me stop you right there because that, that's an interesting point. Is there a correlation between that learning style and the people that are in prison? Is it a higher percentage? No, I don't think so. I think there's a higher percentage of people who learn by doing anyway. And one of my most important mentors, Buckminster Fuller, who designed the geodesic dome. Mm -hmm. If you've ever been to Epcot Center, it's Spaceship Earth in the middle of Epcot Center. Um, Bucky said the only way we learn is through experience-based knowledge. Mm. But one of the reasons why we lose over 3,000 people a day from our schools is that we still haven't learned that lesson. So you're and talking about students dropping out. I'm talking about students dropping out of school every day in America. Wow. And there's a whole, I wrote it, my dissertation, doctoral dissertation, on the shock incarceration program and what I'd learned over the 30 years it took me to be clear enough about writing it down and right. saying, saying what right. it was. So we all learn by experience. We all learn from mistakes. But we have this system in our minds in the educational system sometimes that you know we we make a mistake we get an f yeah instead of hooray right you've learned something right right you know one of the things i learned through quantum learning is failure leads to success absolutely and that was absolutely the system i operated from and I remember discovering for myself, oh my God, I've been learning the proper way all along. <laughs> but it's not that way in the majority of traditional right. academic. Right. You're right. supposed to you know, study and memorize and do all those things, none of which I could do yeah. at the time. Yeah. I had to, I could get it and I would never forget it once I got it, but it's like practice makes permanent. Yeah. And so we, we taught from that model. There is so much more that I want to ask you. So we're going to take a break, though. And when we come back, we will continue our conversation with Dr. Sherry Clark and Mr. James Redmond. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. So welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with my two very special guests today, Dr. Sherry Clark and Mr. James Redmond. 
So James, I want to start with you. Um, when you began doing the filming uh, for this documentary, did you have an expectation of what the finished product would be? Well, I, I mean, I had an idea that it would be telling the story yeah. and the story about how these prisoners had transformed themselves. Yeah. Did you, were you surprised by anything as you were going through this and you were filming? Were you surprised by anything? Well, uh, I was surprised at, again, how quiet, how orderly, and really how contented almost the prisoners oh. were. You know, that they wanted to be there, they wanted to learn, yeah. they wanted to go through the program. Right. And then, you know, interviewing them, seeing that they actually liked it and were getting uh, all the principles that they were talking about. Yeah, yeah. And were you able to ask them what they thought was going to be happening after they left? Yes. And what kinds of answers did you get? Well, you know, it, it varied. Yeah. You know, from uh, some of them were going back to their family. Yeah. But a lot of them, you know, were eager to get back home and then put the principles start living the oh, life. Nice. You know, start living a different life than what they had. Right. Right. And so that really speaks to the concept of hope, which a lot of prisoners don't have. They don't have that sense of hope. They certainly don't go into prison with a sense of hope. And most prisons do nothing to uh, cultivate hope in one while they're in prison. So, Sherry, was that a component for the program, that building hope? Oh, absolutely. The, the um, One of my favorite graduates, and I have a number of them, but one of my most favorite graduates ha has her favorite phrase is, keep hope alive. Oh. And she says, I know Jesse Jackson said it first, but I said it better. <laughs> and, and she is featured in the documentary. Mm. And also on the website, there is a whole uh, talk by her about what she learned out of shock mm. incarceration. And she was after she's been out 26, 28, 29 years. Yeah. I can't remember how long ago it was that she graduated, but she was just elevated to ecumenical minister in her church. Oh, wow. She runs a very important uh, reentry program for the New York City Housing Authority. She has a reach of about 650,000 people. Oh, my. Just in that state, plus right. she trains all over the country. And she learned those things from her drill instructors and from the principles of shock incarceration. And I have hundreds of stories like that. That's quite a success story just on its own. And you must stay in touch with her, right? All the time. All the time, yeah. 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 She introduces me as her mother. <laughs> her husband introduces me as yeah, his mother, too, his because mother. <laughs> we also graduated from the program. Well, you know, that says a lot. And I imagine that there are um, a lot of the prison population who actually didn't have such good parenting or, you know, or had no parents or just one or... Right. Well, they also had parents who had to work. Yes. You know, parents yeah. who worked a lot of jobs yeah. and, and, you know, just didn't have, or they had a parent in prison. Right. They had, there were things, I mean, that's not that unusual, but 
The average in this country is one in 100 people in the United States of America is in prison. We're the largest prison population in the world. Our country represents 5% of the world's population. We incarcerate 25% of the world's prisoners. That is a stunning fact. Stunning. It's astounding. It's, it's outrageous, as a matter of fact. And shock incarceration was started because of prison overcrowding because we had in New York some, some really, really stringent drug laws. Yeah. The Rockefeller drug laws were passed and that meant someone could be doing 15 to life for selling a vial of crack. Mm. It, it, it was just, it got out of control. Right. We were building, in the United States of America during the 80s, we were building approximately 140 prison beds a day. Oh, my God. That, you know, that, that just... How did this happen? How did we get there? Because I, I can't believe that from the beginning of this country, there was always this huge um, disparity between how many people were, were living on this land and how many people were um, being held prisoner. How did we get here? Well, fear. Fear. The other F word. Yeah. But it's also, it's also our whole attitude toward failure, that mm. we think failure is wrong instead of yeah. a learning, an opportunity to learn. Right. If we only learn through experience, we're not going to get much experience if things are easy for us. Right. We get experience from the things we have to learn right. and practice. And so... We have a lot of fear about the other person, and the whole second chapter in my dissertation talks about who goes to prison and why. Hmm. And we can look at the history of immigration in this country. And in 1888, if you were looking for a job, very often the job said Irish need not apply. Yes, And so in those times, the bulk of the people who were in prison were immigrants who were Polish and Irish, right? Um, Italian, and now they're the people running the prison. Right. And in the 1950s, it became more black and Hispanic, yeah. and that whole population, and that population, that's not one in a hundred, that's one in four. Oh, my God. African-American males can expect to go to prison in their lifetime, statistically. Yes. That's not what happens, but they are yes. incarcerated at a far higher rate right. than, than any other race, and it's fear. It's fear, it's lack of opportunity, it's, there are a whole bunch of things. It's, it's the poor choices. It's, it's going to school when I was working in the social justice system. We had kids who didn't get breakfast unless yeah. there was breakfast served at school. Right. Just because there wasn't enough money. Right. You know? So they would, or they would have very poor nutrition because it was cheaper right. than good nutrition. Right. And when research has shown that kids who don't have breakfast do much more poorly than other kids who have a good start to the day with nutritious right. food, right? 
Yeah. Um, well, one of the programs that I worked with when I was working with volunteers in corrections and still in corrections was a program called Genesis that was based on teaching little kids how to make choices. And one of the things the volunteers started doing was they were one of the first free breakfast programs because mm. they would bring breakfast to the kids so they would be able to study. What a gift. There's so much we could all do. Just imagine if everyone in a community <laughs> were able to do, you know, just like one thing a week. And maybe, you know, Tuesday would be my day to take, you know, some little breakfast thing to a school and I'd be responsible for either organizing it, you know, and getting some of the restaurants to chip in, or I'd be responsible for making a bunch of it or getting other moms to make it. I mean, it, it seems like we all know the kinds of things that can be done. And when we wait for our government to do it or the bureaucracy to do it, it ends up being um, typically inadequate and way too long before they make the decision anyway. And so, you know, it seems to me like we are really moving into a time when, at least in the U.S., a lot of us are deciding, oh, forget the government. <laughs> we, we just can't rely on the government. So we're going to have to live our lives a little differently to figure out how to take care of our own, take care mm -hmm. of people, right? Whether they're homeless or whether they're uh, abused, you know, kids or, or women or they're drug addicts or they're people in prisons or, I mean, there are, you know, or they're undernourished kids, mm -hmm. right? I just feel like we're, we're moving into this really different way of looking at things which I suppose if there's any good thing that could be coming out of our crazy political situation here in the U.S. right now, that might be it because, you know, people have just become fed up. And, they're just, and they don't, they're not even trying to change it anymore. They're just saying, forget it. We're not even going to engage. And starting to look at how do we, what are some of the other ways to solve this, right? Now, that's not going to happen fast. But when you begin to change mindset, then things get done differently, right? Well, people used to ask me, why didn't I do this program in schools? I said, that's not my area of focus. Mm -hmm. I'm going to focus on one thing. Mm -hmm. I know what to do mm -hmm. in a prison system with existing staff who are good people who want to do a good job yeah. and earn their salaries. I know how to do that. Mm. And by the way, at that time, they wanted me to. They yes. wanted yeah. to have housing units. James talks about the clean, quiet yeah. housing units. Well, that doesn't happen accidentally. Right. That happens because there's a great deal of discipline. Mm. There's a great deal of focus. Mm -hmm. There's a very short period of time that shock incarceration operated it it was a six-month program from start to finish mm -hmm. inmates graduated from the program and if they successfully completed shock incarceration which was grueling mm. 5 30 in the morning till 9 30 at night wow and inmates might have wanted to go in in the beginning because 
six months. I can do anything for six months sure. until it's 5.30 every morning <laughs> that you're getting out of bed and mm-hmm. 9.30 at night before you're off your feet mm-hmm. and sleeping for eight hours. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's all of those kinds of things. It's tough. It's a tough, tough program. And they could earn as much as two and a half years off their sentence if they successfully completed shock incarceration. So that was a big carrot. That is. Even so, about 30% of the people did not finish. Oh, wow. They would just say, it's too hard. Well, sometimes life is too hard. Sometimes you feel like life is just handing you one Mm. blow after another, and you've got to keep going, and you've got to keep moving in the direction so we taught them skills to keep moving yeah when it was too tough you know we used all kinds of strategies including i think the military was the best focus for us in the way that we use the military model because it helped people stand up straight it helped Mm -hmm. them take pride in themselves Mm -hmm. in their appearance in the way they moved sure in the fact that they worked together as a group right they weren't individuals they were a platoon they lived as a platoon they ate together they worked together they played together everything they did they studied together well and that's very different from a typical day in prison as a prisoner you're practically um just trying to survive and protect yourself right yes you know and, and trying to get out of through the day alive and so just that being accountable to someone else as a platoon and, and of course the teachers and the drill right. sergeant etc but well one thing they also taught them is that how they work together how they work together yeah. as a group and how they resolve their challenges or problems mm-hmm. yeah it wasn't just military it was sitting down in a confrontation group every week. It was sitting ah. down in a learning choices. Right. It was sitting in substance abuse treatment classes where they learned just practical skills for staying sober. Mm. And we mm. used a 12-step model. I mean, there were critics and people who tried to stop us from using the 12-step model. But really? the fact is we used the 12-step model because... That was the one thing we could guarantee an inmate could go to that right. wouldn't cost them money That's upon right. release. That's right. So if they knew how to be in a meeting of people who were going to support them to stay sober, they could go out there and function. But like I said, there were people who said separation of church and state, First Amendment. They did all these things. That's why I got my doctorate. I wanted lawyers to call me doctor. <laughs> On that note, we're going to take a break and we come back. We're going to learn some secrets about this program. We'll be right back. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa 
Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations and my guests today, Dr. Sherry Clark and James Redman. So, Sherry, we're talking about um, much of your experience in the New York State Department of Correctional Services and the programs that you developed to help prisoners change their way of living life and their perception of who they are and who they could be in the world. What was the most difficult part of that program for most of them? Different people had different challenges. Sure. So it, it wasn't like any one thing, but when they realized that they were having to really learn about themselves mm-hmm. and come up and, and confront things about themselves that that were getting in their way, that was very hard. In the mm-hmm. beginning, the exercise and the drill and ceremony sure, yeah. and the marching and formation, all of that's the the hardest part. Sure, for them. yeah. But yeah. once they learn that it's left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, mm-hmm. and it's always left foot first, <laughs> once they learn those basic skills, then they they see how much faster they can get through mm-hmm. things once they learn to sit up straight and speak with good purpose and yeah. and do all the things that we taught them in every aspect of the program mm-hmm. then the thing that was most difficult i think was facing their own fears and their own challenges mm-hmm. i mean you watched some of that james is there anything you observed not more than what you said, you know, because I only saw a few people. Sure, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that um, it made me think of when basketball coaches talk about teaching basketball players, one of the first things they do is teach them fundamentals. Yes. And, you know, the players always want to go and start making all those crazy shots and, you know, being the hot shot. And the good coaches go, uh-uh, go dribble the ball. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's the fundamentals that make you good. And the things that you're talking about that you're teaching them, which include just staying at something, right? Just sticking with it, even if it's tough. And, but getting good at it. And then go to the next thing and get good at that. Right, so that when they are outside the prison and outside of this structure, you know, that makes me wonder how did they do outside when they were able to to leave the prison? The vast majority did very well, especially when we had the very a very very strong aftershock program. Hmm. We had a, a program that for the first. 90 days they were engaged in ongoing workshops they were encouraged although we couldn't really control it but they were encouraged to continue to go to 
an AA meeting or an NA meeting or whatever. And we would talk about 90 meetings in 90 days and talk Mm. about the fact that they'd been in meetings for six months. They'd been in a support group. So find a good, solid support group. Stay off the corner. Yeah. You know, and we had a number of strategies that we would talk to them about. And sure enough, the less than 8% first year out who did come back to prison were on the wrong corner. Oh, yeah. And at the same time, there was, I remember, a very early graduate who told me stories about how it took him about 20 minutes to get to work in the morning. It took him an hour and a half to get home at night. Because drug dealers weren't on the corners in the morning, in the morning so he could take the fast trains and he could take wow. the fast the fast walk to the train station. But at night, he had to circle around places oh. because they were to just, avoid them. Yeah, to yeah, stay away from yeah, drug yeah. dealers. So if they wow. change people, places, and things, and they couldn't, they couldn't often change places. Mm-hmm very well but they did the best they could to work to focus and there was a whole system in place to support them in the community when that happens there's enormous success and some of them did it with absolutely no agreement but they'd had the six-month foundation with the fundamentals so those fundamentals that they practiced every day they Mm -hmm. just did it they'd get up and make their beds I love it. They didn't have to make their beds, but I love it. they'd get up and make their beds. And when they were out, because they didn't they have to out. make their beds oh, in the program. Oh, they had to make their beds yeah. every day <laughs> right. in, in shock. Yeah, and they, yeah. had to, they, they got up at 5.30 in the morning. They had to be on the PT deck for exercise mm. and the run by 5.45. In that period of time, they got up, they got dressed, they made their beds, they, and and in some cases had to put on winter clothing because we we were doing this program in upstate New York, so it was very cold. Yeah. And they had to do all of this in 15 minutes and be on the PT deck at 545. Sometimes their housing unit was pretty far away from the PT deck, so they had Mm -hmm. to move Mm -hmm. first thing in the morning, and they just kept doing it. That's great. You know, they'd dress, they'd their clothes were clean, their yes. pants were ironed, their shoes were shined. And they were responsible for all of that. They were responsible no one did for it all for of them. that. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And so when they went back home into their families, I mean, did you have the opportunity to speak with the families when they got back? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but in some cases, they didn't have families to go back to, mm-hmm. or there was a, uh, a regulation, for example, if oh. they came out of public housing... They couldn't go back home. That's what Yolanda's doing now, working yeah. to change that. Yeah. That they could not go back home. And I remember thinking, how did I not know that? Hmm. The, so sometimes they had to go to shelters. Sometimes yeah. they had to go to somebody else's house. So basically they lost their privilege, you know, their opportunity to live yeah, in public housing. Yeah, but it's a ridiculous law yeah. because one of the highest correlations between success post-release right. is a solid family relationship. Right, right. And if they could not go back into public housing, then where were they going to go? Their mm. kids were there. Their mother was there. Their family was there. It, you know, so they'd have to make do. Yeah. But they, you know, they could see their families, but they couldn't live with their families. Right, right. Which was 
just bizarre to me. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Does That's it? changed. Spend all that time to, to, um, you know, rehabilitate, and, right. and then you can't even get them back to people they love. Sherry, would you talk about their success rate of the program and what it saved New York? Well, in the first year out, their success rate was approximately anywhere from 88 to 92% hmm. success. Wow. It went down slightly after that, but it wasn't, it wasn't dramatic. It was like 85%, 70% by third year out. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that was due to economic problems. That was due to housing problems, things mm. like that. That wasn't necessarily due to the program didn't work. Right. You know, it was the program worked. Right. And there were limited number of jobs that right. you could get for decent money. Right. right. You couldn't live with your family. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of things were all factors. Mm-hmm. But we still had a much lower recidivism rate, even three years out, which is the standard um, than any other program. So because we didn't have to build as many prison beds, because we didn't hold them in those prison beds as long, because we had more resources for them, we saved the state of New York in the first 23 years of operation, this before I retired, well, even earlier than that, in the first 15, 18 years of operations, mm-hmm. we saved over a billion with a B. Wow. Um, and by the time I retired, which was 23 years after the program opened, $1.4 billion in cost of care, in cost of construction, in capital cost, all kinds of things were major cost savings because these people were going out and not going back to prison. That is, that's unequaled. I bet there is any program, there's no program that could claim that. I haven't seen any research that that says we were the largest and most successful program of its kind in the country. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so did you have other state systems coming to you saying, teach us how to do this? A number of states came, a number of localities came. Other countries came to see what we were doing. And by and large, people would have the intention of doing it, mm-hmm. but shock was more complicated oh, yeah. and slightly more expensive. Mm-hmm. In spite of that slightly more expensive, we still saved the state of New York right. $1.4 billion. Right. But people would come, be funny. It'd be like you had this four-legged chair, <laughs> and they'd see this four-legged chair, and it really was a four-pronged program spiritual emotional mental and physical program you know not not talking religion when i say spiritual i'm just talking about the essence of human so here's this nice little four-legged chair and they'd come and they'd say you're doing this is so great this is wonderful we want to go back and do it but we're not going to do the 12 steps (laughs) or we're not going to do the military model Mm -hmm. so they'd pretty soon have a one-legged chair (laughs) and they'd say well the program doesn't yeah. work. The oh, program no. works. Right. But you got to have those four legs right. holding that foundation. That's right. You know, and so that was that was the biggest struggle we had. And then also, wasn't it uh, the training? Yes. Yes. Staff training was very expensive. Yeah. Every single person in the staff envir- in the staff environment had to be trained. 
Now, we had low contact training for the staff who didn't have the the job of teaching inmates certain aspects of the program. And that was a two-week training program. That's very expensive. Mm. The high contact training was a four-week training program. Oh, wow. That we continued in, you know, monthly right. monthly training and things like that. But that's very, very, very expensive. Mm. And New York was committed. New York was committed to making this program work. Yeah. And so we had the funding for training and we trained all of the staff. And mm. we before we opened a training, we trained every staff person who was going to be in the environment. We trained them in a one-month training. Training involved them going through the program as if they were prisoners. Oh, yeah. So they experienced it themselves. Oh, so they fantastic. knew what the prisoners were going to go through. Well, then that's perfect. Right. I mean, learn by doing. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Well, there you I go. would say they were learning by doing what they had to teach the right. prisoners. Because right. if you don't know how hard it is to do a push up, if yep. you don't know how hard it is to memorize mm-hmm. something that you have to memorize, then you, you're going to dismiss it as right. easy. Right. If you have to learn it, mm-hmm. and they did it, they had mm-hmm. one month to learn mm-hmm. everything they were going to be teaching inmates for six months. Yeah. So they weren't treated like prisoners. They were treated like staff who were going to be working with right. prisoners, and they better know right. what they were going to be expecting inmates right. to know. So they had, staff had to do it in a month. Well, I have had the privilege to see this documentary, Shock Incarceration, and it is so touching and so eye-opening, so well done. And... I loved when you, you know, not only just when you interviewed the prisoners, but when you interviewed the staff, you know, I mean, that was fascinating because what really struck me was that they felt better about the work they were doing, right? So we don't have much time left, but give me a little snippet of, you know, someone on the staff who really was transformed by this well i can think of uh, a couple of the guys but they one of them says that he goes by four other prison and to get to a shock facility to work at wow he says that he'd rather drive and then i met one other one that he was doing something crazy it was like he lived six hours away oh my and he would drive there work there and sometimes he would find a buddy to stay with, but sure. then, then then go then go back home. But he would he would rather work there and make yeah. a difference in somebody's yeah. life than something that was convenient. Yeah. And one of the guys who was being interviewed was just so proud. He said, "We save lives." Yes. Yes. You know yes. that's one of the opening lines. We save mm-hmm. lives, and it, you know he learned so much. That's amazing. And. And they're teaching, and they're teaching their kids. Yes. And, yes. you know, so there's there's collateral cost. We saved $1.4 billion. The estimate that we saved is, is more like 3 to $4 billion in collateral cost oh from shock incarceration. That is just, you know, almost mind-boggling. That it could, and, and what is wrong with this country? I mean, there's something that works, and we're spending so much money on things that don't work in the prison system. And it just, that is 
nuts to me. But that's the bureaucracy, right? Um, well, we could be talking about this for the next few hours, and we've come to the end of the show. So tell us, how can people see this film? Where can they access it? When, where can they learn more about you? What's that? The best place would be to go to uh, shockprisons.com. Okay, shockprisons, S-H-O-C-K, prisons, plural, dot com. And the, the, the access to the documentary is there? Yes. Okay. On the shockprisons.com website are the documentary, some other videos, and my doctoral dissertation, That's 12 Degrees awesome. of Freedom, Synergetics and the 12 Steps to Recovery. So you can read about it. You can look at it. You can find a number of resources right there. Fantastic. Well, thank you both for being here today. This is quite an eye-opening story. I'm so glad for you and, you know, just so impressed that you really put your heart and soul into this and captured this so other people can learn and other people can maybe understand that there is a way, a different way to support people who really need to be supported in creating a better life. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Remember, everyone, think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.